0: Welcome to Seattle Pacific University. We are delighted to have you all here with us. I'm Celeste Cranston. I'm the director of the Center for Biblical and Theological Education here here at Seattle Pacific University. And I'm just so pleased that you've chosen to join us here for this great opportunity to hear from our Lord via his servant, Eugene Peterson. This event is part of our Scripture as Formation conference, put on in partnership with the North American Professors of Christian Education, and I want to extend a special word of welcome to our friends from NAPSE. Would you join me? These friends have come from around the country for their annual gathering and as well, I want to welcome our Scripture's Formation conference attendees, also many of whom are from coming from some distance, and our own SPU faculty and staff and our students and our local friends as well who found your way here for this great gathering. Would you join me in a word of prayer? May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. I want to introduce you this evening to Seattle Pacific University's president, Dr. Phil Eaton, one whose passion and vision for biblical and theological education on our campus and around the world has culminated in this center's becoming a reality making possible this event and many others like it. One who has given selflessly to this university and its mission to engage the culture and change the world. One who has now given his last State of the University address as he is planning for a new season in his life and the life of the university. One whose legacy of service will long be remembered and cherished as he brings greetings on behalf of the university. Please join me in welcoming President Phil Eaton.
1: Thank you so much, Celeste, and I would like to say welcome as well. Welcome to all of you, the various groups who are here joining us on our campus. We are. Uh, Just delighted to have you for this very, very special evening uh, with Eugene Peterson. Uh, Yesterday in this room, uh, we held the Day of Common Learning, where we shut down all of our classes. Um, We gather in this room for a, uh, a major address, a keynote address. Then seminars are going on all over campus. And we were led in the day by Dr. Jennifer Wiseman, who is a senior research scientist uh, with NASA, the NASA Hubble Space Telescope. We looked into the heavens in this room yesterday. We looked into the galaxies, believe me, an unbelievable presentation from the Hubble telescope. And we found out that God is very, very big. Uh, we found out that with an accelerating, expanding universe that God is creative. We found out that God is happy, I believe. And it was a wonderful time. So now we shift gears this day in this room with all of you, and we are going to look into the scriptures, and we're going to look into the scriptures deeply, and we are going to find a very big God and a very happy God there as well. So, what a wonderful evening this is. Um, that's the life on a university campus and, um, and 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 what a terrific thing to be here. Let me also say this, that six years ago yesterday, uh, we had Christian Smith from Notre Dame, uh, a sociologist of religion, come and speak to us uh, about teenagers and faith. The Faith Experience of American Teenagers, in route of his study uh, called Soul Searching. And what he was uh, representing and presenting to us is that basically teenagers, young people today, even our students, uh, uh, do not know the scriptures very well. They are, in fact, he would say, biblically illiterate. And he was also saying that, in fact, our churches are not teaching the scriptures. And so, therefore, our young people are not understanding the scriptures. And I stood on this stage after his address and I said, Chris, we've got to do something about this. What could we do as a Christian university? What could we do to address this issue? What could we do to focus our own Uh, university life around the scriptures, anchoring the center of our university life on the scriptures. And our School of Theology faculty grabbed this, this, this task and this challenge and said, what could we do? What can we do together? The Murdoch Trust came alongside us with a major grant to form the Center for Biblical and Theological Education. And this tonight is what we witness. Part of the, part of the result of all of that work and all of that focus uh, you, many of you know about our Lectio that goes on, comes out every Monday morning. It's really spanning across this world. People are reading our School of Theology faculty to understand the scriptures better. And, uh, and then we have conferences such as this. So, all of this is, um, is it, it, still maturing, still coming into its own. But nevertheless, we have come a long ways in understanding, reflecting on, committing ourselves to understanding how the scriptures form this university, shape this universities, how the scriptures uh, uh, can be read uh, um, uh, better than uh, the, the, do the job better than we are doing it today. So this is a this is a neat moment for us. Let me say just a word about Eugene Peterson. As we begin, um, I'm not doing the formal uh, introduction, but I want to welcome him as well. Celeste will do the do the formal introduction in a moment. Most of you know his work. Um, uh, a long journey, a long faithful journey in the same direction as he. Uh, title of one of his books: "A Long Obedience," as he has committed himself to uh, writing and uh, and speaking and teaching and and all of that that we know so well. That's why we are here today. But I would like to tell a little story. On this campus, um, uh, during the 1950s, Eugene Peterson uh, studied literature and philosophy. He also took a Greek course uh, from one of our professors named Dr. Winifred Weeder. He studied Greek on this campus. I had an extraordinary uh, experience when Winifred Weeder, 40 years a teacher in this place, she was dying. And uh, she was not very uh, mentally capable when I took a copy, a leather-bound copy of the message to her, and I held it up to her. I was not sure she was understanding me, but I said, Winifred, I said, right out of your Greek class, there was one of your graduates who went on to translate the scriptures. And this Bible now has gone all over the world. I swear to you, she had a twinkle in her eye. I think she caught it. I think she got it. I think she understood that her commitment in the classroom, on this campus, had an influence of this sort. Through Eugene Peterson, isn't that a great story? And uh, we we of course continue to celebrate that kind of activity that goes on on our campus day in and day out. But we are very very proud that Eugene Peterson is with us tonight. We're very proud of him as a distinguished alum among us, a friend of ours to be sure. And uh, I know you're going to enjoy his address tonight. So thank you for being here. God bless you.
2: Please stand ladies and gentlemen, and join us in the singing of this wonderful hymn, Speak, O Lord.
0: What does it mean to practice resurrection? The questioner was an earnest 20 year old raised in the church and now a self proclaimed atheist. Quoting Wendell Berry's poem, Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front, he was stuck on the last line What does it mean to practice resurrection? something every day that doesn't compute, what does that kind of life look like, and is it possible? Today I want to introduce you to one whose life speaks to that question, whose pattern of service to our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has consisted of an imaginative and unrelenting practice of resurrection. Why else would an ambitious, intelligent young student, intoxicated with the life of the mind, a graduate of Seattle Pacific University, class of 1954, and of New York Theological Seminary and Johns Hopkins University, one whose plan was to become a writer and a professor, why else would he choose instead the mundane, humble path that led to being called Pastor Pete, By a chorus of children. Why else would one whose imagination had been schooled in the company of Moses and David, feeding on the writings of Karl Barth and John Calvin, give his life's energies to a congregation of small-town folks who kept emotional and mental company with television celebrities, and whose literature of choice was People magazine? Why else would one who earlier in life had believed that, quote, being a pastor was what you did when you couldn't do anything else? (laughs) One step up the ladder from being unemployed. Why else would this man take on shepherding the workaday Baltimore suburbanites and in that pastorate suffer for six years in what he called the badlands? Why else would he renounce the cultural assumptions that bigger is better, that pastors need to show results in the form of solving problems? Why else would he express a strong distaste for what he calls the cancer of the church, a ladder-climbing, mega-growth, leadership-driven mentality? Why else would he and his wife Jan of 53 years deliberately choose a weekly pattern of wasting a day each week in the refining fire of non-performance, not just taking a day off, but rather keeping the Sabbath? Why else would this wordsmith warn of what he calls God-talk, depersonalize, non-relational, unlistening language that kills, and instead nurture a language of conversation with scripture and with the congregation? Why else would he choose to stake his life on the impossible possibility that everything in scripture is not just true, but livable? Why else would the author of the gold medallion, award-winning contemporary translation of the Bible, entitled The Message Professor Emeritus of Spiritual Theology and the author of more than 30 books ask that I introduce him today simply as pastor. Because the same man, intently haphazard as he takes up his cross and follows Jesus, is all about learning the unforced rhythms of grace and practicing resurrection. Please join me in welcoming Pastor Eugene Peterson.
3: Thank you, Celeste. And thank you, Philip. We were in a restaurant one Sunday a few years ago. Our three grandchildren were living, were spending the weekend with us as their parents went off and had fun. And um, we were in this little restaurant, and several of the congregation who had worshiped with us were there also. And um, as they left, they stopped at our table and said, You children, you were so precious. We watched you. You were so good. Oh, just, you were so precious. I can't believe how precious you are. She used the word precious about ten times. (laughs) And as they left, Hans, who was six years old, seven, he said, Grandma, Grandpa, we're not nearly as good as they think we are. (laughs) That's the way I feel right now. (laughs) The Gospel of St. Mark is the basic text for spiritual theology. That is, Christian living. Living the Christian life, not just thinking about it, talking about it, defending it. And I use the definite article, the, deliberately, the basic text. The entire canon of Scripture is our comprehensive text, the revelation that determines the reality that we deal with as human beings were created, blessed, and saved by God. But St. Mark, as the first gospel written, holds a certain primacy. No one had ever written a gospel before St. Mark did, wrote his. He created a new genre. It turned out to be a form of writing that quickly became both foundational and formative for the life of both church and Christian. We are accustomed to believe that the Holy Spirit inspires the content of Scripture, but it is just as true that the form is inspired, this new literary form we call gospel. There was nothing quite like it in existence, although Mark had good teachers in the Hebrew storytellers that gave us the books of Moses and Samuel. The Bible as as a whole comes to us in the form of narrative. And it is within this large, somewhat sprawling narrative that St. Mark writes his gospel. One of our great contemporary storytellers, Wallace Stegner, wrote that we live mainly by forms and patterns. If the forms are bad, we live badly. Gospel is a true and good form by which we live well. Storytelling creates a world of presuppositions, assumptions, and relationships into which we enter. Stories invite us into a world other than ourselves, and if they are good and true, a world larger than ourselves. Bible stories are good and true stories, and the world that they invite us into is the world of God's creation and salvation and blessing. Within the large, capacious context of the biblical story, we learn to think accurately, behave morally, preach passionately, sing joyfully, pray honestly, obey faithfully. But we dare not abandon the story as we do any or all of these things. For the minute we abandon the story, we reduce reality to the dimensions of our minds and feelings and experience quite disconnected from the life we are living and the God in whose image we were created. The moment we formulate doctrines, draw up moral codes, throw ourselves into life apart from a continuous re-immersion in the story, we walk right out of the presence and activity of God in all the operations of the Trinity and set up our own shop. The distinctiveness of the form gospel is that it brings the centuries of Hebrew storytelling, God telling his story of creation and salvation for all people, to the story of Jesus, the mature completion of all those stories, a way that is clearly revelation, that is divine self-disclosure, and in a way that invites, insists on, our participation. This is in contrast to the ancient preference for myth making, which more or less turns us into spectators of the supernatural. It is also in contrast to the modern preference for moral philosophy that puts us in charge of our own salvation. Gospel story is a verbal way of accounting for reality that, like the incarnation that is its subject, is simultaneously human and divine. It reveals. That is, it shows us something we could never come up with on our own by observation or experiment or guess. And at the same time, it engages. It brings us into the action as recipients and participants, but without dumping the responsibility for us on making it turn out right. Well, this has great implications for our spirituality, the way we live our lives in relationship to God. The form itself protects protects us against two of the major ways in which we go off the rails. Living as frivolous spectators, clamoring for new and more exotic entertainment out of heaven, or living as anxious moralists, putting our shoulder to the wheel and taking on the burdens of the world. The very form of the text shapes responses in us that make it hard to become a mere spectator, or a mere moralist. This is not a text to entertain us. And it is not a text we master and use. It is a text that we are mastered by. It's significant, I think, that in the presence of story, whether we're telling it or listening to it, we never have the feeling of being experts. There's too much we don't yet know. Too many possibilities available. Too much mystery and glory. Even the most sophisticated of stories tends to bring out the childlike in us—expectant, wondering, responsive, delighted—which, of course, is why story is the child's favorite form of speech and why it is the Holy Spirit's dominant form of revelation, and why adults who like to pose as experts and managers of life so often prefer explanation and information. So much for the form of the text. Now I want to talk about the content of the text. We don't read very long in this text by St. Mark before we realize that it's about Jesus Christ, and before we have finished, we realize that it is about God revealed in Jesus Christ. This seems obvious enough, but let me dwell on the obvious for a moment. I have named St. Mark's Gospel as the basic text for living our lives completely and well, that is, our Christian spirituality. Spirituality is the attention we give to our souls, to the invisible interior of our lives that is the core of our identity, These image of God's souls that comprise our uniqueness and glory. Spirituality is the concern we have for the invisibility It inheres in every visibility. For the interior that provides content to every exterior, it necessarily deals with innerness, with silence, with solitude. It takes all matters of soul with utmost seriousness. It would appear to be a wonderful thing that, and our initial exclamation is most likely, would that all the Lord's people were so engaged But 20 centuries of experience qualifies our enthusiasm considerably. In actual practice, it turns out to be not so wonderful. When you look at our history, it is no wonder that spirituality is so often treated with suspicion and not infrequently with outright hostility. For in actual practice, spirituality very often develops into neurosis, degenerates into selfishness, becomes pretentious, Turns violent. How does this happen? Well, the short answer is that it happens when we step outside the gospel story and take ourselves as the basic and authoritative text for our spirituality. We begin, we begin by using our lives as our sacred text. We don't usually throw the gospel out, we merely put it on the shelf and think that we are honoring it by consulting it from time to time as an indispensable reference work. Our wisest guides, spiritual guides, tell us you are wonderful, glorious beings, precious, here's that word again, souls. Your aspirations for holiness and goodness and truth are splendid, but you are not the content of the Christian life, your spirituality, the lived quality of who you are. God revealed in Jesus is that. You need a text to read and study and learn from. Here's your text. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Start with St. Mark as your basic text. So we open the text and read the story of Jesus. It is an odd kind of story. It tells us very little of what interests us in the story. We learn virtually nothing about Jesus that we really want to know. There is no description of his appearance, nothing, at least in Mark, about his origin, friends, education, family. How are we to evaluate or understand this person? And there is very little reference to what he thought, how he felt, his emotions, his interior struggles. At some point or other, we realize that this is a story about God and about us. Even though Jesus is the most referred to person in the story, there is surprising reticence in regard to Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of God, so we're always being faced in Jesus with what we're faced with in God. Most of what is here we don't get. We don't see. don't understand. We don't figure Jesus out. We don't search Jesus out. We don't get Jesus on our own terms. It follows that neither do we get God on our terms. The story isn't quite like the stories we're used to. And then we realize that our attention has been drawn away from ourselves and is on God, God revealed in Jesus. True spirituality, Christian spirituality, takes attention off of ourselves and focuses on another, on Jesus. There are others in the story, of course, many others—the sick, hungry, victims, outsiders, friends, enemies—but Jesus is always the subject. Jesus provides both context and content for everyone's life. Spirituality, the attention we give to our souls, turns out in practice, when we let St. Mark shape our practice, to be the attention we give to God revealed in Jesus. The text trains us in such perception and practice, line after line, page after page, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. None of us provides the content for our own spirituality. It is given to us. Jesus gives it to us. The text allows for no exceptions. As we read this text, we soon discover that the entire story funnels into the narration of a single week in Jesus' life—the week of his passion, death, and resurrection. And of these three items, death gets the most detailed treatment. If we are asked to say as briefly as possible what St. Mark's gospel consists of, we must say, the death of Jesus. Well, that doesn't sound very promising, especially for those of us who are looking for a text by which to live text by which to nurture our souls but there it is 16 chapters in this story the first 8 chapters jesus alive strolling unhurriedly through the villages and backroads of galilee bringing others to life delivering them from evil healing their maimed and sick bodies feeding hungry people demonstrating his sovereignty over storm and sea telling marvelous stories gathering and training disciples, announcing that they are poised on the brink of a new era, the kingdom of God, which at that very moment is breaking in upon them. And then, just as he has everyone's attention, just as the moment for life and more life is at its crest, he starts talking about death. The last eight chapters are dominated by death talk. The death announcement also signals a change of pace. As the story is told through the first eight chapters, there is a leisurely and meandering quality to the narration. Jesus doesn't seem to be going anywhere in particular. He more or less drifts from village to village, goes off by himself into the hills to pray, worships in the synagogues, gives the impression that he has time to take with meals with anyone who invites him over, goes boating with his friends on the lake, We do not construe the relaxed pace as aimlessness or indolence, for the energy and intensity are always evident. But through these Galilean years, Jesus appears to have all the time in the world, which, of course, he does. (laughs) But with the death announcement, that changes. Now he heads straight for Jerusalem. Urgency and gravity and destination now characterize the narration. The direction changes, the pace changes, the mood changes. Three times Jesus is explicit. He's going to suffer and be killed and rise again. And then it happens, death. Jesus' death is narrated carefully and precisely. No incident in his life is told with this much detail. There can hardly be any question about the intent of Mark. The plot and emphasis and meaning of Jesus is his death. And it's not as if this death emphasis was an idiosyncrasy of Mark, a morbid obsession of his, distorting the basic story, for this sequence and proportion is preserved by Mark's successors in gospel narration, Matthew and Luke. They elaborate St. Mark's basic text in various ways but preserve the proportions. John, who comes at the story from quite a different angle, dazzling us with images of light and life, actually increases the emphasis on death, giving half of his allotted space to the Passion Week. All four Gospel writers do essentially the same thing. Tell us the story of Jesus' death and write long introductions to it. And Paul, exuberant, passionate, hyperbolic Paul, skips the narration completely, and simply punches out the conclusion, Christ died for us. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But there's far more here than the simple fact of death, although there is that most emphatically. This is a carefully defined death. It is defined as voluntary. Jesus did not have to go to Jerusalem. He went on his own volition. He gave his assent to death. This was no accidental death, it was embraced willingly. It is also defined as sacrificial. He accepted death that others might receive life, his life as a ransom for many. He explicitly defined his life as sacrificial, that is, as a means of life to others when he instituted the Eucharist. He took a loaf of bread, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. And it is defined in the company of resurrection. Each of the three explicit death announcements concludes with a statement of resurrection. The gospel story as a whole concludes with a witness to resurrection. But that doesn't make it any less a death. But it's a quite differently defined death than we're accustomed to dealing with. Tragedy and procrastination are the words that characterize our culture's attitude to death. The view of death as tragic is a legacy of the Greeks. The Greeks wrote with elegance of tragic deaths, lives that were caught up in the working out of large, impersonal forces, lives pursued with the best of intentions, but then enmeshed in circumstances that canceled the intentions, circumstances indifferent to human heroism or hope. The death of Jesus is not tragic. The procrastinated death is the legacy of modern medicine. In a culture where life is reduced to heartbeat and brainwave, death can never be accepted as such. Since there is no more to life than can be accounted for by biology, no meaning, no spirituality, no eternity, increasingly desperate attempts are made to put it off, to delay it, to deny it, the death of Jesus is not procrastinated. So it's essential that we counter our culture by letting St. Mark's storytelling shape our understanding of death and eventually come to understand our own death within the dimensions and relations of Jesus' story. And now at the center of what I'm wanting to say to you, the spiritual theology of the text. I noted earlier that one of the distinctive qualities of gospel story is that it draws us into participation. The first half of St. Mark's Gospel does that. All sorts of people are drawn into the life of Jesus, experience his compassion, his healings, his deliverance, his call, his peace. We find ourselves implicitly included. In the second half of the gospel experience of personal participation becomes explicit. And right at the center of St. Mark's text is a passage that I'm going to designate as the spirituality of the text. But I need to be upfront with you as I use this word spirituality. The word has been so secularized in contemporary usage that it's hard to avoid a sense of insipidity that it often communicates, a kind of blurred, abstract suggestion of piety. And I find myself more and more using the word as sparingly as possible, But I remind you that the word spirit in our three parent languages of Hebrew, Greek, and Latin carries the root meaning of breath or wind, a metaphor that easily offers itself up as a metaphor for life, the biblical term of choice to refer to this vast and intricate livingness that is God, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Holy Spirit. By using the adjective spiritual at this juncture, I intend to call attention to the place where our concern for our souls, our lives, and Jesus' concern for our souls, our lives, converge. By by spirituality, I mean the particular way in which St. Mark wrote his gospel to help us experience truly the message he writes. It goes without saying, I think, that Mark is not a journalist writing daily bulletins on the first-century activities of Jesus, nor was he a propagandist, attempting to enlist us in a cause that had designs on history. His gospel is spiritual theology in action, a form of writing that draws us into participation in this story of God's life given for us. Now, the passage is right at the center, at St. Mark 8:27 to 9, verse 9. It is set right at the center. One half of the gospel story, the multiple Galilean evocations of life, fall symmetrically on one side, and on the other side, the single-minded travel to Jerusalem and death. And the passage consists of two stories. The first story, Jesus' call for renunciation as he and his disciples start out on the road to Jerusalem, provides the ascetic discipline in spirituality. The second story, Jesus' transfiguration on Mount Tabor, provides the aesthetic dimension in spirituality. The stories are bracketed at either end by affirmation of Jesus' true identity as God among us. First, Peter saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Second, the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Human testimony to begin with, divine attestation at the other. But before I draw your attention to these two stories, I want to insist that we keep them in context, that we maintain their connection. These stories must never be removed from their context with each other. Their context is the life and death of the God-revealing Jesus. St. Mark's Gospel has Jesus as its subject. Out of context, these stories can only be misunderstood. They do not stand on their own. They do not give us pieces of spiritual theology that we can walk off with and use on our own terms. The two stories are organically connected. They must not be torn apart. They are the two-beat rhythm in a single spiritual theology, not two separate ways of doing spiritual theology, which is to say to live the Christian life, participating fully. The two stories bring together what I will name the ascetic and the aesthetic movements of living the Jesus life. The no, which is the ascetic, and the yes, the aesthetic, together at the heart of Christian living. First, the ascetic movement. This is God's no in Jesus. Jesus' words are succinct and stark, if anyone If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The ascetic life deals with life on the road. The verbs that leap out of the sentence and pounce on us are deny yourself and take up your cross. Renunciation and death. It feels like an assault, an attack. We recoil. But then we notice that these two negatives are bracketed by the positive verb follow, first as an infinitive, then as an imperative. If anyone wants to follow, Akaluthane opens the sentence. You follow me concludes it. Jesus is going someplace. He invites us to come along. It sounds, in fact, quite glorious, so glorious in fact that the great verb follow sheds glory on the negative verbs that call for renunciation and death. There is a strong ascetic element in spiritual theology, in Christian living. Following Jesus means not following our impulses and appetites, our whims and dreams, all of which are sufficiently damaged by sin to make them unreliable guides for getting any place worth going. Following Jesus means not following the death-procrastinating, death-denying practices of a culture which, by by obsessively pursuing life under the aegis of idols and ideologies, ends up with a life so constricted and diminished that it is hardly worth the name life. Grammatically, the negative, our capacity to say no, is one of the most impressive features in our language. The negative is our access to freedom. Only humans can say no. Animals can't say no. Animals do what instinct dictates. No is a freedom word. I don't have to do what either my glands or my culture tell me to do. (laughs) The judicious, well-placed no frees us from a blind alley. Many a rough detour frees us from the debilitating distractions and seductive sacrilege. The art of saying no sets us free to follow Jesus. If we adhere carefully to St. Mark's text, we will never associate the ascetic, the no, with life denying. Ascetic practice sweeps out the clutter of the God pretentious self and makes ample space for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It embraces and prepares for a kind of death that the culture knows nothing about making room for the dance of resurrection. Whenever we are around someone who is doing this well, we notice a lightness of step, a nimbleness of spirit, a quickness to laughter. H.C.J. Mool, a British scholar, wrote that these dominical negatives may have to carve deep lines in heart and life, but the chisel need never deface the brightness of the material. And alongside St. Mark's ascetic is his aesthetic. This is God's yes in Jesus. Peter, James, and John see Jesus transfigured before them on the mountain into cloud brightness in the company of Moses and Elijah and hear God's blessing. This is my beloved. Listen to him. The aesthetic deals with life on the mountain. The word beauty does not occur in the story, but beauty is what the disciples experienced and what we find ourselves experiencing, the beauty of Jesus transformed, transfigured, law and prophets, Moses and Elijah integrated into the beauty of Jesus, the beautiful blessing, my beloved, everything fitting together, the luminous interior of Jesus spilling out onto the mountain, history and religion beautifully personalized and brought into deep, resonating harmony, the declaration of love. There is always a strong aesthetical element in true spiritual theology. Climbing the mountain with Jesus means coming upon beauty that takes our breath away. Staying in the company of Jesus means contemplating his glory, listening in on this vast intergenerational conversation consisting of law and prophet and gospel that takes place around Jesus hearing the divine confirmation of revelation in Jesus. When God's Spirit makes its appearance, we recognize the appearance as beautiful. Now, here's the thing about the transfigured Jesus—Jesus in the form of revelation. Light does not fall on this form from above and from outside. Rather, it breaks forth from the form's interior. The only adequate response that can be made to light is to keep our eyes open, to attend to what is illuminated, adoration. The aesthetical impulse in spiritual theology, that is, the practice of the Christian life, has to do with training in perception, acquiring a taste for what is revealed in Jesus. We're not good at this. Our senses have been dulled by sin. The world, for all its vaunted celebration of sensuality, is relentlessly anesthetic, obliterating, obliterating feelings of ugliness and noise, draining the beauty out of people and things that are functionally efficient, scornful of the aesthetic, except as it could be contained in a museum or a flower garden. Our senses require healing and rehabilitation so that they are adequate for receiving and responding to the visitations and appearances of spirit, God's Holy Spirit. The fundamental insight of the Bible is that the invisible can only speak by the perceptible. These bodies of ours, with their five senses, are not impediments to a life of faith. Our sensuality is not a barrier to spirituality, but our only access to it. Thomas Aquinas was convinced that a-sensuality, non-sensuality, was a vice. The rejection of one's senses too often leading to sacrilege. When St. John wanted to assure some early Christians of the authenticity of his spiritual experience, he did it by calling on the witnesses of his senses: sight, hearing, and touch. That which we have seen, heard with our seen with our eyes, heard, touched with our hands concerning the word of life. In the opening sentence of his first letter, John calls on the witness witness of his senses seven times. And so St. Mark sets this story of glorious affirmation in immediate juxtaposition to a story of stern negation. In company with Jesus, these bodies of ours, so magnificently equipped for seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, tasting, climb the mountain—itself a strenuous physical act—where in astonished adoration. We are trained to see the light and hear the words that reveal God to us. This seems simple enough, and it is. St. Mark does not go in for subtleties. He sets, sets it all before us quite plainly. But he also knows that simple and obvious as it is, it is easy to get it wrong. Peter's initial response in both ascetic road story And the aesthetic mountain story was wrong. On the road, Peter tried to avoid the cross. On the mountain, he tried to possess the glory. Peter rejected the ascetic way by offering Jesus a better plan, a way of salvation in which no one would be inconvenienced. Jesus, in the sternest rebuke recorded in the gospel, called him Satan. Peter rejected the aesthetic way by offering to build memorials on the mountain a way of worship in which he could take over from Jesus and provide something hands-on and practical, something functional, not personal. This time, Jesus just ignores him. (laughs) Well, Peter's propensity to get it wrong keeps us on our toes. Century after century, we Christians keep getting it wrong, and in numerous ways. We get the ascetic wrong, Our history books are full of aesthetic aberrations, full of aesthetic aberrations. Every time we get sloppy in reading the text of St. Mark and leave the company of Jesus, we get it wrong. One more thing. These two stories, carefully placed at the center of the gospel story, are not the center of the story. St. Mark's story, remember, is a story about Jesus, not us. In fact, if we deleted this section from the story, the story would still be the same story. Nothing in this road and mountain narrative is essential to the understanding of Jesus as he lived, was crucified, and rose from the dead. Without this account of the road and the mountain, we would still know most everything St. Mark chose to tell us about Jesus and as the revelation of God, a full accounting of Jesus' work of salvation. So what happens here is that we are singled out and invited into being full participants in the story of Jesus and shown how to become such participants. We are not simply told that Jesus is the Son of God. We not only become beneficiaries of his atonement, we are invited to die his death and live his life with the freedom and dignity of participants. And here is the marvelous thing. We enter the center of the story without becoming the center of the story. Spirituality is always in danger of self-absorption, of becoming so intrigued with matters of soul that God is treated as a mere accessory to my experience. This requires much vigilance. Spiritual theology is, among other things, the exercise of this vigilance. It's the discipline and art of retraining us into a full and mature participation in Jesus' story while at the same time preventing us from taking over the story. And for this, St. Mark provides our basic text. The two stories at the center, the road and mountain stories, are clearly proleptic. They anticipate Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and get us in on it. They immerse us and train us in the ascetic negations and the aesthetic affirmations, but they don't leave us there. They cast us forward in faith and obedience to the life that is finally and only complete in the definitive no and the glorious yes of Jesus crucified and risen. Amen.
0: We're pleased to have opportunity to engage, um, Pastor Peterson with some questions. I've asked a few folks to be prepared here, and I understand some of them have questions that we are going to, um, to read and give him a chance to respond to. Let's see. Mark, are you ready? Okay, this is from Mark of the Nazi board, and he says, It seems that everyday life wars to dull and pervert our senses to the point where it is difficult to see beauty, to see his beauty. What are the key pathways to healing our senses so that we can see his beauty
3: clearly? We have many allies. We have artists. We have pastors. Um, there's an enormous amount of wisdom accumulated in poetry and novels. Uh, but we have to be discerning about what, what we do. We have to find the best. It's not too hard. Uh, just turn off your television set, um, and it's, it's all there. But I think in the middle of all that, if you... Um, Solitude and stillness are important. We don't get this kind of thing by getting more. We get it by getting less. Find a way to be quietly in prayer, by yourselves, regularly, and cultivate this dimension of the ascetic and the aesthetic. But we have you know, we could spend the evening here talking about people letting you give witness to the people who helps you do this. Um, the scriptures I guess we require some corroboration to enter into this um, in the midst of all the competition and uh, the ugliness and the noise that's in the world
0: okay this is a question from Judy who is a conference attendee scriptures formation and a pastor from Oklahoma and she asks How can we pastors effectively invite our people out from a privatized and often fear-based bibliolatry into scripturally grounded, life-based attending on the living triune God who encounters us? I know that snarky comments from the pulpit alienate (laughs) counterproductively, (laughs) not to mention perhaps unchristianly, So what strategies, pastorally, do you commend to us as most adequate? Other than, of course, translating the book of Galatians.
3: (laughs) Well, that's a a pastor's question. (laughs) And uh, not all of you are pastors. But um, the thing that comes to mind right now is this is a difficult job. We have a whole culture working against us, and we need to kind of take our platform, pulpit, space uh, with um, discretion. And right now, in our country, we are um, we are just inundated with angry, mean people, both politically and in the church. Um, all these fights over small things, uh, forget about them. That's not our job. We're, we're trying to invite people into things like St. Mark. Um, but you don't do this, you can't do this impersonally. Um, pastors have the unique opportunity to do something almost nobody else gets to do in our culture. That is to do something that isn't, commercialized that um, doesn't have status value. We have a chance to get to know people, get to know their stories, listen to them. Um, well, I think that's, that's enough. I'll start preaching a sermon if I keep on going. <laughs> but it's not impossible to do. And uh, I know many people are doing it. Uh, you just don't... Uh, You don't read them, you don't get quoted in the newspapers or get on TV. So, but we've got a wonderful platform, area, a sacred place to do this. You know, the way we get to know people and listen to their stories, pray with them.
0: Okay, Okay, this is from Tyler, an SPU student. And he asks, can you speak? of the importance of forming a meta-narrative understanding of the Christian story through the lens of Mark's gospel.
3: Um, One of the things that's um, a legacy that is difficult to um, counteract is we have been, we, we grew up in an educational system which is almost entirely depersonalized. Learning means gathering information, answering problems, uh, getting facts. And that's infiltrated the church, the church's education and congregational. So we have so many, um, we know a lot about certain places, parts, but you're right, we do lack a meta narrative. I talk a lot about. Um, acquiring a biblical imagination and one of the things I hoped to do with the message was to provide access to that. Um, One of the battles for with the publisher that um, I lost was when I presented my first manuscript to them there were no verse numbers. Why do we need verse numbers? Mark didn't put in verse numbers. Isaiah didn't put in verse numbers. It just makes it easy for you to pick out something you like and memorize that, and, and you've got it. You've got a... You've got scripture in your heart. You've memorized it, but you don't know the story. And um, I lost that. I We compromised. They put the verse numbers in a, a not-very-bold print on the, in the margins. Um, but this is a story. This is a complete story. You don't take... Um, um, a novel, Moby Dick, say, and go through and find pieces of the story you want. It's a huge story about evil and righteousness and goodness. Um, The Bible is a huge story about salvation, reconciliation, gathering all the people together. So I would encourage you to try to develop that biblical imagination uh, by showing the connection of all these things uh, together. Um, One of my favorite books in the Bible for doing that is the Revelation. Uh, It's probably one of the least read or least understood books in the Bible. But you realize what what John did. He was living in a world which was denying virtually everything the Christian um, world was saying. And in this Roman Empire, which was... Not, had no idea what he was doing, and were people who didn't know the Bible. And he took the Old Testament and just ransacked, oops, sorry, (laughs) ransacked it for images, recovering the story and making a poem out of it, the Revelation. And everything in the book of Revelation occurs someplace in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and but he reshapes the story of Jesus, and culminates in the story of Jesus in acts of worship. Huge, great acts of worship which dominate the story, but you forget about them because uh, the, you know the dragon is pretty wonderful to figure out who that is, and the whore and uh, the horseman, and, but they all are part of the story. Now that's what we need to do for our congregations, teachers, pastors, to develop a sense of meta-narrative, you said, the big picture, the story. Become storytellers and guide your people into storytellers.
0: Okay, let's just do one more if you're game. I'm
3: game. I'm
0: just getting wound up. He's (laughs) just getting wound up. (laughs) Okay. The hour is just early. We're good. This is a question from Mark. How does a gospel message centered in death play with a generation so self-absorbed? They may be drawn to his life, his miracles, his teaching, but what about a message centered in death? What should we expect as we appeal to them about death?
3: Well, I think, I think we. You're right. We, we live in a culture which doesn't want to talk about death, tries to hide it, uh, cover it up, cause medicize it. Is that a word? Um, and we have um, we have wonderful scholars, theologians. Uh, pastors who have spent a lot of time on this, and there is a way to understand the death of Jesus as salvation, and it has to do with reimagining, reentering this life of sacrifice, of renunciation, of giving up, which out of which comes resurrection. And uh, they don't know that story, or they don't know it well enough, and. Um, We've got we've got wonderful allies in doing this, and uh, I just recommend that you find a, th- a couple of theologians that you trust, and who um, and who can just give you a language and imagery and scope of imagination that can take this in. Phil told me just a little bit ago about his admiration for um, uh, M. T. Wright. Um, one of our best scholars living in the world today in the Christian world and uh, he takes up all these questions and writes them lucidly uh, any peop- uh, the laity can understand them as well as pastors professors um, my sense is that we're not paying enough attention to our good scholars um we're letting the the, uh, the mean people dominate the conversation. Don't do that.
0: And with that, will you think? Join me again and think.
2: Let us respond to the word we've heard from Pastor Peterson by standing and singing together verse 3 of our hymn Speak, O Lord. standing for our closing.
4: What a privilege it has been for us to be here this evening and hear from our esteemed friend, Eugene Peterson. I want to draw your attention to the fact that uh, there's some announcements on the back, a um, mention of our guided Bible reading uh, that's a free resource online. Please, uh, if you're interested, we'd uh, invite your participation. And also for those interested in Seminary Education, we have that as well at at Seattle Pacific University (laughs) School of Theology. We're honored to have um, Eugene Peterson back with us here uh, in home territory, and uh, his uh, books are available uh, for purchase outside, as well as uh, information about the Lectio and uh, the seminary I'd like to end this evening with uh, the words of Paul um, from the end of Paul's second letter to Corinth, and I'm reading uh, from the message. (laughs) And that's about it, friends. Be cheerful. Keep things in good repair. Keep your spirits up. Think in harmony. Be agreeable. Do all that and the God of love and peace will be with you for sure. The amazing grace of the Master, Jesus Christ, the extravagant love of God, and the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.